You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. All right, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 2. We will be finishing up this chapter as we work our way through the book of Luke. So Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 39 all the way down to the end, which is 52. 39 through 52. Let me begin by a quick prayer, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Father, we thank you for a wonderful time of singing your word today, Father. Lord, it's true that you are for us. You are a good and, and mighty God. Father, I pray today as we open up your word and see your word and we talk about the incarnation and as Luke shows us this little snippet of Jesus' life as a boy, Father, I, I pray that as we see the incarnation, we see Jesus for who he truly is. And Lord, that'll warm our hearts. Lord, that that will cause us to commit more fully to you as we see all that Jesus did to save us. Father, I pray for the Spirit to work in the hearts of all those to hear, and most importantly, Lord, I, I pray that the Spirit will work through me today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come, come to the point in Luke's narrative as he's telling this story about Jesus and the gospel, as he's given this um, account of all things that he investigated and, and he studied. We kind of, we have this little excursus here. This, this is the only place it is in the Bible. So if we were at a play or watching a movie or maybe like the lights would go out and there'd be a little scene over here on the side as, as the set changes because Luke is about to change the set as he brings back John in chapter three and finishes up him as he launches into Jesus's ministry. So this is kind of just like a, a little reset you know, just to, to give you, uh, the reader a reset in order to, to pass on and move forward with the narrative because we've been talking about Jesus as a baby for, for many weeks now. And in these 13 verses, we see, again, the only verses that talk about Jesus as a boy. Jesus shows us what Jesus was like as a young boy. The story of his visit to the temple in Jerusalem is what this story is focused on. But I want to first draw you, uh, your attention to two verses. And, and it kind of brackets everything that's here. And, and this is a, a, a Bible um, tool that is used often by the writers. It's called an inclusio. It, it, it shows you what, what the author is going to be talking about within the passage in between these two same ideas. So look with me in your Bibles at verse 40. And it reads like this. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor of God was upon him. Now, if we look at verse 52, take your eyes down to verse 52, you see the same words, maybe a little bit different. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Again, these are a biblical tool to use. They're called inclusios. It shows us, okay, this is what this story is going to be about. So we kind of have an idea that the story is going to be about, okay, Jesus grew in wisdom. What does that mean? 
And what I want to do today is point back to show you that he is the incarnate God, that he is incarnated. In other words, he's fully man and fully God. So we'll, we'll look at some of the, the ideas of, of its growth as a human, more things that we can understand a little bit better because we have also experienced those same things. But it's also as he grew in favor with God. And we just see a little glimpse of that about him being in the temple and what he announces. And his announcement is, is so profound. I mean, his little announcement, Luke drops this right in here. And this little word, the first words of Jesus speaking are so profound as a 12-year-old boy. Now, this inclusio idea is used throughout the Bible. It's something that you can look for when you're reading. In fact, the whole Bible itself has two inclusios. It has two ideas that, that are introduced in Genesis and fulfilled in Revelation. So God creates the heaven and earth. There's a marriage covenant, and then there's the promise of Satan's destruction. And then when you go to clear to Revelation, what do you have? You have Satan's destruction, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you have the new heavens and the new earth. So the whole Bible is wrapped in this idea. What's it about? Well, there you go. God's plan, God's purpose. How is he going to destroy Satan? How is he going to bring his children back in fellowship with him? And one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, if we think that that somehow this is just put together by a bunch of guys sitting somewhere, that's an, that's an insane idea. That, you know, there's 60 different authors and there's, there's 4,000 years and all these things and it's all put together in this nice little package. That's just absolutely incredible. What Luke is going to communicate between these verses is how it has something to do with Jesus growing. That's what he's showing us here. These verses testify to the physical, intellectual, spiritual, and relational development of the Son of God. His physical development is the easiest for us to understand. Again, because we're human. He was fully human, just like us. But he was also fully God. We know when God the Son became a man, he took on a human body. In other words, the the baby in the manger was a real baby with all the physical needs that any baby has. As an infant, Jesus woke up in the middle of the night hungry. Maybe sometimes, and I've heard this from several parents, I I don't know what's happening, but I know it's a a good prayer for me to pray is is some of their children just are not sleeping anymore. (laughs) And, And I'm sure Jesus went through periods just like that too. He needed nursed, he needed burped, he needed changed. We also know that when Jesus was an adult, he suffered. He suffered the limitations of our physical existence. He grew tired. He grew hungry. He needed to eat. He needed to sleep. And most importantly, it was his real body that Jesus offered on the cross for our sins. Because if he wasn't the second Adam, it would not be valid. It would not be covering our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what we've been talking about is the doctrine of the incarnation. God the Son became a man. The divine person of the Son assumed a human nature. Understand what this doctrine teaches. Jesus had a human mind as well as a human body. Jesus did not have the mind of God in the body of man. He gave up some things in order to do this for us. What the Bible teaches us is the divine nature and the human nature are joined in one person of Jesus Christ. 
Because these two natures are united in one person, both divine and human attributes are properly connected to the person of Jesus Christ. Like his body, the mind of Christ had to develop. Our passage today says as much. Jesus increased in wisdom. A critical difference is that Jesus did this without sin. We don't have that privilege. He did this without sin, without other things corrupting it. He exercised good stewardship of his intellectual abilities, achieving the maximum potential of the human mind. However, this does not mean that he was omniscient, all-knowing, as far as his human nature was concerned. With respect to his divine nature, yes, Jesus knew all things, but not with respect to his human nature. He was fully human and fully God. There, is, there are boundaries to our human brains. Here we stand at the threshold of one of the great mysteries of the Incarnation. God the Son took on the intellectual as well as the physical limitations of our humanity. And He did so by choice. If we believe in the Incarnation, then we must believe this. Jesus Christ was a real human person. Not just some mythical thing, not just a man that claimed to be this, but He was truly a real human person, and really, truly God. Apart from special revelation by the Spirit, Jesus did not know everything that was outside his experience or beyond the capacity of human minds at the age that he knew it, that we would know it. I'm just trying to drive home this, this idea, this aspect, that he was fully, fully human. It, it wasn't like, oh, well, this Jesus, you know, he, he was God also. So all these things that we struggle with, all these things that we walk with, it, it's like he, he, didn't, he didn't have to deal with that. No, he was fully, fully human. And the things that he did know, I know sometimes is that someone might be sitting there pushing back. It's like, oh, Joe, he, he knew some things. He could tell people's hearts. He could tell when this has happened, this has happened. But yeah, but he didn't do it outside of the Father through the Holy Spirit telling him, right? His, his, his offices are prophet, priest, and king. And we know that all the prophets that we get mostly in, in the Old Testament, they didn't speak on their own accord or their own ability. They received a message from God and then, then proclaimed it. This is the same way Jesus Fully human, walking on this earth, living the life just like we live today, new things like that. These were the rules of engagement, so to speak. This, this is the way the Father designed it. I'm going to send you Jesus, and this is the way that I'm designing this. This is the way, and this is how you're going to fulfill your mission in the world today. We know that Jesus didn't know everything. We know that whenever he was in a crowd and someone bumped into him, he knew the power came out of him, but he didn't know who it was until he asked. And again, I'm just trying to, to it, I'm up here trying to describe one of the hardest things beyond the Trinity there is to describe within our Christian faith, that this man was fully God and fully human. Let me just sum it up this way with a quote from Arcan Hughes. The great historical doctrine of the church is that the Son of God became a real man, not just someone who only appeared to be a man. When he was born, God the Son placed the exercise of all powerfulness and all presence and all knowingness under the direction of God the Father. 
See, he didn't cease to, to be that. He just gave right the, the, the power to give. He gave the, the freedom to use that power to God the Father. He did not give up those attributes, but he submitted their exercise in his life to the Father's discretion. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body, mind, and emotions, complete with their inherent weaknesses. Fully God, fully man. Again, in that centerpiece is, is what's driving all of this. God the Son placed the exercise of his all-powerfulness and all-presence and all-knowingness under the direction of God the Father. He stepped out of heaven to come to earth so that we may be reconciled to him. And these things are the things that he placed under the, God, the, the, the control of the Father. So when Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. Jesus is not asking us anything that he hasn't already done. We're not been asked to give up all powerfulness, all presence, and all knowingness. We're asked to give up our own little kingdom so that therefore we can live for his kingdom and one day inherit eternal life. Eternal life. Most of the time the incarnation is thought of as an event. This is just a one-time thing that we, we celebrate on, on Christmas morning and it's, we put it aside for the, the rest of the, the year, waiting around again till December comes. It's that moment when Christ came to earth, took on human flesh, and lived as a man. But however, the incarnation is much more than an event. It is also an agenda, and it's also a calling. It's an agenda, and it's also a calling. The first agenda, of course, is the most obvious, is to make God known. Why did he do this? Is to make God known. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then later on in verse 18, we see, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In other words, Jesus made him known. John's summary includes an observation with powerful implications. The power of the incarnation is that it makes the presence and glory of God visible. It makes the presence and glory of God visible. By taking on flesh and blood, Christ made known the unseen God. John 8, 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the light. He's showing us who God is. Why does the light need to be shined here on earth? Well, because we're groping around in the dark without being born again, without the gospel. Why does God need to be revealed? Because people do not see him. We're blind is what the Bible tells us. Until God acts upon us and changes our changes our heart, we are blind to the things of God and, and to the Word of God. Until He does that, we are blind. So He comes as the light to shine light in the darkness. In coming to earth, Christ died for His own, but He also gave sight to the eyes that had been blind for a long time. So it's this mystery that 
that Paul talks about in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4 where he says that this mystery is coming where the, the Gentiles, which is all of us, are being folded in to the Jewish people. So not only did God come to, to bring us into the fold, but to, for the Jewish people to show them the true light. To show them that they must have faith in Christ to be saved. The incarnation addresses a problem that is so comprehensively deep, it is impossible for us to even recognize. And we know this. We know this, brothers and sisters, to those that we witness to, to our loved ones, to our friends. You know, a lot of times we'll get the, the adage, whatever's good for you, but it's not good for me. It's like, no. If, if the Bible is true, then one day everybody's going to be judged by, this, by Jesus. And it's whether or not you are in Christ or not in Christ will depend on how that judgment goes. Well, Joe, then how do we see him? He's not walking around today. How do we see him today? If Jesus came to, to make him known, then how do, how do we see him today? Well, Jesus left in the ascension and sent the Spirit to live in those who believe so they would fulfill the second agenda. And the second agenda is for the church to be an incarnational community on earth so that our presence would reveal His grace and His glory, that we would be the light that people see. We find this in Jesus' prayer. We see this incarnational living by the body of Christ that represents the light for the world. We see this, him praying for this. In John 17, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, talking to his disciples now, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. As disciples told people and made disciples and told people and made disciples and told people, it all comes to us today. Now his prayer, his prayer, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I, give, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. This is his prayer for us. That we would live in such a way, in such a unified way, that we would be the light that shines for the world, for those that are groping around in the dark, those that are worshiping other gods and worshiping self, that we would be the light to show them Christ. This is a remarkable prayer for, community, uh, for unity. I mean, he's actually praying like, He's praying for us to be like the Trinity. We know that God, without sin, perfectly loves one another. He's praying for us to be that way. That's a lofty prayer. It only can be fulfilled by God, the Holy Spirit, through His Word. Jesus prays that His followers would be characterized by such deep love, that the community of faith would be as unified as He is with the Father. That's remarkable. And that's not happening in our own strength. That only happens if we are trusting and believing in Christ. If we are believing in His grace and His power each and every day. 
The purpose of the unity of the body of Christ within this incarnational community is to reveal the person and work of Christ to a watching world. They're watching. They're always watching. Mainly, they're watching to see if we're hypocrites, to see if we say one thing and do another, but they're always watching. So show them love. Show them his love for you by the way you show love for one another within our faith family and for the world around us. The purpose of the unity within this incarnational community is to reveal him. It's to reveal him. Do you see the wonderful privilege it is to be part of God's plan to make himself know, known? What a, what a wonderful privilege it is that, that this is the way he designs it. He calls us to himself and then he's designing it that as we come together and we become an incarnational community who loves one another well, that we can be a light that shines, that shows the world who God is. That's pretty remarkable. It means that we should have one agenda, as he says, that we should pick up the cross. We should have one and one only agenda, and that is to make Jesus look awesome. That is to make Jesus look awesome. Because see, this incarnation, it has an agenda, but it also has a calling. It has a calling for everyone that is in Christ, for everyone that is a believer in Christ, and for everyone that is a child of God. There is a calling, and we find this in 2 Corinthians 5. It's actually from verses 14 clear down to 6-2. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to hit the highlights. And it starts in verse 15 where it says, And he died for all, that those who will live might not no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's starting it out. Okay, so I saved you for one purpose, so that you don't live for yourself anymore. That you're not living for the kingdom of one. That now you're living for others. Then you go down to verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So therefore, all your sins have been forgiven. You are not that person. You are now saved. You're being redeemed. You're being sanctified. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and he gives you the power to walk a certain way, a way that shows the light to the world around us. He says, just listen to this. I notice some of you are sitting here today, and you have defined yourself by your past. I know that. I know that for a fact. That some of you are getting ready to walk into whatever you have tomorrow saying, you know what, I can't do this because of this or I can't do this because of that because I am this and that has been defined by your past. No, if you are a new, if you are in Christ today, you are a new creation. All that has passed away. He's giving you everything that you need. Our job as we equip the saints to do the work in the ministry is to help you get sin out of the way so that you can live as Christ has already identified you. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You're not working towards the fruit of the Spirit. You have it. The only thing that gets in the way of it, of having complete patience, is our sin. And so we equip each other. We help each other to change. We help each other speak truth and love. We help each other to do the hard thing and show them the heart issue so that we can repent and turn from that and completely trust in our new identity. We are a new creation in Christ. Let that stuff go. Let it go. 
You're not defined by what other people think of you. You're not defined even of what you think of you. You're defined, if you're in Christ, about what the Bible says about you. And there's some remarkable things that the Bible says about you. As we sang, our God is for us. He loves us. What about this calling? Now that he's done all that, he's done all that for you. Now, now he's asking to do something in his power. Not to, to, not to step aside and do it in your own strength, but to walk by the gospel, by the grace, by the power of the Spirit. And he's called us to do some things. He says this in verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given every single person a ministry of reconciliation. If you are in Christ, then that's your ministry. At whatever level, whatever way that you can do so, that is your ministry. Verse 19 goes on to say that is in Christ God has, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. This is your identity. You are an ambassador for Christ. That's who you are. You are an ambassador for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our calling. We are ambassadors for Christ. Do you see how he's putting all this together? How the incarnational community lives to, to make Jesus known, to make God known? Because he's called us to the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors to him. Paul here uses this word ambassador to define what it means to live incarnationally. The job of an ambassador is to represent someone else. Everything she does or says must intentionally represent a leader who is not physically present. That's what an ambassador does. Paul says that God has called us all to function as his ambassadors. Our lives do not belong to us for our own fulfillment. That's why Jesus says, pick up your cross. Leave some things behind. So our primary question to answer is, how can I best represent the king in this place with this particular person. When I get up tomorrow and I go to work, how can I best represent the king? Jesus, God. When I get up tomorrow and I go to school and I'm in class and I'm on campus, how do I best represent the king? How do I best represent the God who saved me? Brothers and sisters, this is not like a part-time gig that you get to turn on and turn off. This is a full-time, it's a lifestyle. When an ambassador assembles his rep, a res, assumes his responsibilities, his life ceases to be his own. Everything she says and does has weight because the king they represent. Again, we're, we're not trying to, to point people to us to say, look how much I know about the Bible or look how awesome I am because I don't sin like that person. All we're trying to do is point people to Christ. We're showing them the love he has shown us. Wonderful love. I mean, this is obviously where we often stumble. This is often where we get in trouble. We don't want to live ambassadors. I mean, we want to live ambassadors, but Joe wants to live as the ambassador of Joe and Joe's kingdom. We want to live as many kings, but he has called us differently. 
He saved us for a purpose. Just to give some thought on being an ambassador, Paul Tripp gives us three points of focus, and I I can only just mention them as passing, as we need to kind of get back to our passage a little bit. The message of the king is the first thing. An ambassador is always asking this, what does my Lord want me to communicate to this person in this situation? What does my Lord want me to communicate to this person in this situation? The second thing he goes on to say is the methods of the king. Here I will ask this question. How does the Lord bring change in me and in others? What is his way of doing things? And the third thing is the character of the king. Here I ask, why does the Lord do what he does? How can I faithfully repent the character that motivates his redemptive work? So the incarnation... It's much more than an event. See, it's an agenda. It's God's agenda, and it's also a calling for us. And we see this with Jesus as a young boy. We see this as Jesus as a young boy. We read in verse 41 through 42 this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So now we see, as we looked at last week, the faith of Mary and Joseph, their commitment to please God. They're doing what they are required to do. They're they're obeying God. And and their obedience is is for their joy. It's for their joy. They go to Jerusalem to celebrate when God saved the Jewish people in Egypt, right? That's the Passover. That's the whole idea. That's what they're going to celebrate. Being a committed family, they all go together along with their family and many others from the town. So you think about this like the whole town is going up. So all the relatives and friends, it's like a big caravan heading up to Jerusalem to celebrate this. Because many times traveling in those days were very dangerous. Right? There was, you know, we're not trucking along at 60 or 70 mile an hour. We're, we're on camels and donkeys and we're walking. And a lot of times it's where robbers, so they had to take provisions for that journey and oftentimes robbers and people want to take advantage so they would they would travel in big packs as they walk as they walk and and go to Jerusalem Luke tells us Jesus was 12 in another year he would be 13 and this is important this is important because the following year he would be fully be able to participate in the synagogue. So often tradition would have is when a young boy became 12, he would travel with the family for Passover so that he can get the lay of the land, so to speak. So he can see that everything, how everything happens for Passover. Because the following year, he's going to um, be moved into full participation in the synagogue. We know that today as the bar mitzvah, as the Jewish people celebrate, the train, where the, the young boy can now fully participate as in the synagogue. So as we continue our story in Luke 42 through 45, and when he was 12 years old, he went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposedly him to be in a group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. 
So again, this journey, they, they're all traveling together. So it's, it's very much that a young boy at 12, who's, who's almost a man, I mean, a couple ways from probably being married, right? He he's, has some freedoms among this group of people. So he's, they're, they're assuming that he's with this relative or maybe uh, with this cousin or something like that, and they're traveling, but he's not. He didn't travel back. And so when they go and check on him, he's not there. So we continue to read. You all thought when I just now started the thing, like we got another hour to go, didn't you? Right? That's what you're thinking. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in a temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You see that this is the place where this satisfied Jesus' soul. He wanted to learn as much as he could about Scripture and the promise of salvation. Thus, he was irresistibly drawn to the house of God. He was drawn there. He's sitting there asking questions of the the rabbis. Again, asking and answering questions, that was the prime way that that they learned back then. They would sit down with with these um, Pharisees, not Pharisees, but for the teachers and everybody. And and that's how they would would talk and learn with each other. Notice that here Jesus is fulfilling Luke's inclusio. He is growing in wisdom and favor with God. Favor with God because he was about God's business. Then we go to verse 48. The parents make their way back. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, anybody who has ever been in charge of children, oversight of children, and has misplaced them for a moment knows this feeling. I mean, they, they've dealt with it for a day. Where is Jesus? Where could he be? We're a day's journey out. We got a day's journey back. What, what has happened to our son? It's absolute panic, isn't it? You've experienced that. Even if it's just your little brother or sister, even if you didn't have kids, it's like, man, we're in a mall or in a place, and what happened to him? He's gone. I mean, one of our children, and they'll remain nameless, used to love to hide in the center of the clothing racks. I'll be able to talk here in a second. The clothing racks, and they would hide there. So we're out shopping for school clothes or something like that, and the child disappears. So after we learned what happened and what the MO was, we could go back and we can search the coat racks and the clothing racks because they like to hide in the very center so no one can find them. So we, we've been there. We've all been at that place at some point in time where the child is gone. So we can understand their, their exuberation. Like, what's happened? Where did Jesus go? And you know what? There's something else. As we learn here that Mary hid all these things and pondered them in her heart, right? We've been looking at that all through how she has done each thing, each event has happened to her. So you know that here's Luke, the historian, right? That he's, he's looking at eyewitnesses and he's investigating this. You know who told this story. Mary told this story, right? Mary's the one that told him this story. She had to be. I mean, we know that. Again, verse 51 says that, and his mother treasured up all things in his heart. I mean, most of the time, your mom can't remember your name, right? They go through the, the three siblings or the aunts or all these other people. They can't remember your name, but they do remember, right, whenever you do silly things like this. 
things to scare them, things that cause them great grief in the moment. Thankfully, they can tell that Jesus was in the temple. And what we read next in verse 49 is Jesus' answer to Mary. And Jesus' answer is his first words recorded here in the Bible. What the boy Jesus said was monumental. And listen to what he said. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? He's, it wasn't that he was sinning. He wasn't trying to hurt his parents. He was just being led by what he knows and where his desires are drawing him. Did you not know, this is huge, that I must be in my father's house? That I must be in my father's house? This reveals his true identity as the son of God. A roof is actually revolutionary in its implications for our own relationship to God as our father. Jesus referred to God as my father. This intimate expression was totally new. My father. I had to be in my father's house. No one has ever said anything like that before. To be sure, the fatherhood of God is present in the Old Testament. There are at least a dozen places where the scripture refers to God as father. However, those who are speaking always refer to themselves in plural, not my father. Here we draw into the mysterious things of the triune God. We already have pondered the mystery of the incarnation, that the divine Son of God had a human nature in every sense of the word. Here we are reminded that the one true God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My Father. I had to be in my Father's house, Jesus said. As the incarnate Son, Jesus knew God as Father, even when he was a boy. This meant when Jesus was at the temple, he was right where he was supposed to be. He was about his father's business. He was not sinning against his earthly parents. He was not disobeying any instructions they had given him about when to beware. He was exactly where they should have expected him to be. In my father's house. In my father's house house. We read the second inclusio in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. See, passages like this are here for you to see Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of God. Because he was in his father's house, my father's house. And Luke showed us that he grew just like any human being grows. So within here we see that he is fully God and he is fully man. He's the incarnate God. Jesus, fully man, fully God, setting aside his all-powerfulness and all-presence and all-knowingness under the direction of God the Father, in order to come to earth to die for you and me. To die for you and me. That's what the incarnation means. 
what a wonderful, gracious, loving God that we have. That he cares for us so much that Jesus would give those things up to come and live as a human so that he could be the proper sacrifice on the cross to take away our sins. What a wonderful, gracious, loving God we have. Do you know him today? Do you know him today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the love you've shown us and the grace you have given us. Lord, thank you for the reminder that Jesus was fully human. He grew just like we have grown. He was also the Son of God. He was fully God and fully man. Father, I pray that we see that it's more than events. Lord, I pray that we see that it's an agenda and a calling, Lord. And that each one of us today that know him would step into that calling to be ambassadors. To be about the Father's business as Jesus was in the temple asking questions, learning. Because he knew he needed to be about his Father's business. His Father my Father, God the Father in heaven. Father, I pray if anyone here does not know you, Lord, I pray that the Spirit will change their hearts to take them from darkness into light so they may see you for who you truly are, may turn from trusting in themselves and trust fully in you. And Father, I pray for each one of us today as we have been reminded again of who Jesus is, be reminded again of being ambassadors. Being reminded again that it is our love for one another that is the witness that shows everyone who God is. Along with the message of what Christ has done. Lord, I pray that you would help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.